Welcome to the Community Health Alliances podcast brought to you by Monarch Healthcare Management as a donation to Care Resource Connection. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Steve Coring, Fire Chief for the City of St. Louis Park. And I'm Amy Looked, the CEO of Care Resource Connection. And we are honored today to have two guests uh, joining our podcast. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit today about a topic that a lot of organizations and communities need to be spending a lot more time on and, and something that we've really learned uh, to focus on in our work with the Community Health Alliance. And today we're fortunate to have two experts on that in that topic. We have Radius Guess, who's the Racial Equity Court or Director for the City of St. Louis Park. And we have Jocelyn Hernandez-Swanson, who is the coordinator for that race equity in the city as well. So welcome, ladies. We appreciate you being here today and uh, sharing your wisdom. So let's start a little bit by sharing some of your thoughts about this topic uh, as we reach out about community health. Well, first of all, I just want to say thank you, uh, Steve and Amy, for both inviting uh, Jocelyn and I to be here on today. Uh, this is a very important topic, and it is a topic that communities and systems and agencies across the country are having because I think we realize that, you know, we have not done a good job of engaging all communities and making sure that all voices are at the table. And so I just get real excited when we get a chance to be in a space Space and have this very important discussion, you know, because I think that we know that there are some impacts, racial equity impacts that are hurting uh, audiences, especially those who are underserved and underrepresented. We also know that there are some you know, strategies to mitigate some unintended consequences oftentimes, and we don't want to take the time out to have that kind of conversation as well. So again, thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. Jocelyn, do you have some thoughts that you'd like to share? Jocelyn, Not... I'll save, save your comments for uh, when the topics get even juicier, right? Yes, All I right. need some uh, some of that juicy stuff to be able <laughs> yeah. to to talk off the cuff as good as Radius does. Oh, cool. thank you so much. <laughs> so I think, you know, so let's, let's, let's expand on that a little bit because one of the things that, that Amy and I know, we identify very, very quickly in this community health world is that, you know, some of the... You know, there's the, the the conversation around equity, right? Mm -hmm. Equity and access; those are two very, very interconnected components of healthcare. And uh, we see that those folks who maybe are high utilize high utilizers of the 911 system, maybe you're tapping into that 911 system, it really impacts how people feel about them. Really, mm -hmm. it, it it begins to kind of uh, hurt them a little bit and how people gain how they can gain access or equity within healthcare. But really, this is a, a bigger discussion around, do they even have a primary care physician? Do they have the ability to connect with healthcare in any other way other than 911? And, and the work of the Alliance is really to uncover those gaps, those deficiencies, those really um, errors that are occurring within the community and not just assume that just because 911 exists that everybody can access it, mm -hmm. right? So do you do you feel that that's a, a big component of this? I think it depends on uh, who the audience is. I mean, I think that bodies of culture or people of color, underserved, underrepresented audiences, you know, view 911 differently 
you know, some of us are, are, are fearful because we don't really know that the, the cultural competency is there, that they're going to, you know, understand me or, or am I going to be deported or am I going to be reported out or called out or, you know, are they actually going to come when they see me? Are they going to not give me the same care that they would give for someone who is not a person of color? So I think that we have a lot going against us. So that's why, you know, relationships, and getting to know people in non, you know, 911 crisis spaces so that they have a face or they know you or you know them by name. You know, that really does help when we create those kinds of opportunities. But I think initially people are just fearful and apprehensive to place that call for, because it's the unknown. What are you going to do with that information? Are you going to give me the same treatment and care that you would give to someone who does not look like me or who does not have the same racial, cultural, ethnic background that you have? And where do you think that fear stems from? I know I get this a lot when I, you know, and please forgive me if if, mm. if I um, if I speak because there's, there's so much I'm still learning myself, right? Mm -hmm. So I know for myself as, as a white woman, I don't have these same fears. Mm -hmm. And in my family, um, I don't have anyone else in my family that has those types of fears. So around my kitchen table, even as a mom, you know, it, it's, I have to think about how can I raise my children in, in this world today and how can we you know, have these conversations at home. And then in the work that I do, how can I have these conversations out in the community? And when I start having these conversations, I can visibly see um, my, my, my counterpart or, or the, the folks across from me, if, if they are white as well, the minute I start talking about race and equity and inclusion, automatically it's, you can just feel like, okay, here we go. And I say that because I see it and I can, mm -hmm. I can read, I'm just saying what I see. Mm -hmm. And I, I work in areas where it's not necessarily the topic of conversation. And when you are having this conversation, it's, you want to find ways to almost diffuse something before it even starts. Right. Mm -hmm. um, because there's nothing wrong with having a conversation. Mm -hmm. I think even myself, I need to learn how to bring these topics up mm -hmm. in, a, in, in a better way. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so in order for me to be able to help others really build these relationships and, and talk about these, these topics with, with fear and trying to, you know, get to the bottom of, of where things are, um, what I have learned through my body of work, being a care coordinator in the health system and then now in the nonprofit space, is a lot of the health system and the community resources, including public health, go to these um, communities and different areas within our, our communities and they're, here's what you need. This is what we're going to give you. And here's flyers, here's links, call us if you need us, boom, we're, we're going to sit at a table and we're going to check the box that we were here and then we're going to go back and say, whoop, done. Mm -hmm. And now we come back with 
the fire department. We have data on the other side of the 911 call. And it's concerning. It's concerning when I'm in a community and I'm hearing that women are calling 911 um, to in, in the midst of childbirth mm-hmm. because they're, they don't understand that the community hospital that has always been there yeah. is different now. Um, they no longer deliver babies there. They have to go to a whole other city to do that. But they went to that hospital because it's a hospital. And f- there's a gap there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's, when I see these things and I hear these things, it's you want to ask yourself, why? Why does it have to get to this space? And how can we better um, serve our, our entire community mm-hmm. by bringing in the right people and, and starting these conversations? You know, I, I think you're asking two questions. At least that's what I'm hearing. And so one of the things that I thought I heard you say, talked about or addressed the fear that, you know, bodies of culture or people of color have with the healthcare profession. That I'm also hearing um, how difficult it is to have courageous conversations about race. So to address, to address the first part, I think about Henrietta Lacks to think about, the, to address the first part, I also think about, you know, the syphilis study. I think about what was happening in the Jewish camps. You know, so I think about all those kinds of things. And those are reasons why, you know, bodies of culture and people of color were very apprehensive to go get COVID testing. We're very apprehensive. And we were making those, ki- we meaning you, were making those kinds of spaces available for free did not cost you anything. There were all kinds of resource fairs taking place all over the country. And we did not participate because we were afraid that we were going to be the guinea pigs. We, we thought, well, let's let the white folks be the guinea pigs for the first time ever. Why should we have to go through that? So we chose not to. And the problem with that, many of us died. Mm-hmm. Many of us lost our lives because we were waiting to see what was going to happen with you because you got the you you took the medication before we did. So that's number one. But I think number two has so much to do with, you know, we have not as a nation, you know, wanted to talk about, you know, everything that happened with bodies of culture, you know, whether they be uh, indigenous, you know, and the genocide and the various schools that were made available for, you know, indigenous children, and then all of the um, um, Africans that were brought over here to be slaves, you know, so that's something we want to erase. We want to act as if that never happened. And but we are still traumatized. We meaning bodies of culture are still traumatized from that experience. And so we need to talk about it. We want to talk about it, but we also want to talk about it in safe spaces. And I don't think that we have done a good job of creating safe spaces for those kinds of conversations to be held. I, as a person of color, as a black cis female, may not want to talk about race with a group of white people. I want to talk about it with my other black sisters, right? Or my other sisters of color, because it's a safer space for me to have that kind of conversation. That makes perfect sense. Yeah. And I think that's that's one of the huge challenges that a lot of communities face um, when these community groups are coming together and we're wanting to create these listening sessions. Yeah. Are the, the 
is that group reflective of who we are going to speak to and who we are going to listen to? Mm-hmm. And I, um, so thank you. That, but I that's, think that's why we also are advocating for authentic engagement spaces. And so I'm going to try to pull in my, my co- colleague over here because she is an expert when it comes to outreach and engagement and creating those kinds of, you know, uh, spaces, brave spaces for safe conversations. Are you ready now? Sure. Go for it, girl. Yeah. Well, I think in this conversation, I hear um, what I hear is participation. We're talking about inclusive participation um, because it's not only engaging folks, but we're also trying to get folks to participate in the conversations or in the surveys or in the polls or something. We're asking for them to participate. Um, And a lot of times in these conversations, I hear, well, it's so hard to get people to be engaged. It's so hard to get people of color or it's so hard to get immigrants or Spanish speakers to be engaged. But in reality, we're we're asking for a lot while not giving a lot back. And on top of that, like Radius said, there's a lot of history around participation. There's a lot of history around mm, communities being asked the same questions over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And it's still experiencing the same traumatic things over and over again. I think especially when it comes to healthcare, um, with, I think, police, with fire, with um, public um, officials, all sorts of things, there's a history of repetition. There's a repeated ask and not a repeated give in participation. Um, and when I think of that, I also think about when, we, when we're having conversations around engagement, are we clear on what we want? What are we asking for? Are we looking for a relationship? Are we looking for a takeaway? Um, Are we looking for data? And are we being upfront and clear about the ask that we're we're asking for? Um, So for me, what's really important is to gain clarity before the engagement even begins. I think that is 80% of the work, is before we even start going out to community members, are we clear about what our process is? Are we clear about what the um, role of participants is going to be. Is this a collaborative effort? Is this a consulting effort? Is this an asking effort? Um, So those are the things that I think of when we have this conversation around engagement. Um, It's really about inclusive participation practices. And when you say that right away, I start to think about how important it is in engagement spaces for us to go back to that audience and say, hey, Mm -hmm. is this what you said? Mm -hmm. Is this what I heard? I want to make sure that I am capturing exactly what it is you said. And so sometimes it's really cool when that documentation is happening right there online. I mean, right there on the spot Mm -hmm. so that it's not something that we're just typing in our own little computer and then going to walk away from it. But they can actually see what's being recorded. That's really powerful when we do that. Yeah. And in this conversation, I also think about power, not only on the engagement piece, but I think also when we're talking about fear and why people are scared, it's who holds power in that situation and how is it being acknowledged or to be quite frank, most of the time it isn't being acknowledged. We're asking people to participate in a process that we have full control over. We have full control over what's going to happen to your data. We have full control over if you even see what we're writing down about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to um, healthcare or calling 911, using those kinds of emergency services, there is a ton of fear. I mean, 
Driver's Licenses for All just passed last week. But before that, and I mean until October, until licenses, you can begin to apply for licenses, why wouldn't you be scared that they would ask you for your ID if the police came? And what would you do in that situation if you don't have an ID for the state, right? So if you're undocumented and you call 911, history shows that you're going to be the one in trouble more than whoever else is involved, right? There was a situation with um, a high school student from, I think, Anoka, and someone rear-ended her, and she was detained, right? So those are the real histories and, and, and real-life situations that people have to face um, and because they don't have the power in that situation. So it's like you're putting yourself in a position where someone else can decide what's going to happen next. It's really scary. Well, I knew eventually she would come around to talk, right? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jocelyn. That's that. Those are all great points. I think we, you know, one of the things in the in the work that we do in this community, and and it's not, you know, I, I think what's important. I always feel like with our firefighters, as we approach, you know, because they are one of the most trusted resources in in the community. Firefighters are. With that being said, there's also this is a process of that we're learning, right? So. I think uh, if we start, what I always try to talk through with our folks is the is this idea that each of us enters the situation with this willingness to to do the right thing, to to always be open to helping and to figuring out a solution that that matches up with the need. It's how we identify the need and how we identify the problem that kind of creates some questions, right? And so when you talk about power, I think the the power lies with the patient. This is a patient-centered world that we that we work in here, that we drive as a patient-centered world. So in our world, we are really without power because the patient holds the power about their information, about where they are, who they want to be, where they want to go, who they want to see, you know. And, and so as long as we stay open, willing and open to create a solution that delivers to that, that's really... That should be our our hope, right? Um, without implicit bias, without kind of trying to treat every patient the same way, I think the beauty of our program, the Community Health Alliance, is that we have tried very hard to design a very agnostic, very patient-driven system. To that point, as Radius, you were talking a little bit about, we have to do a better job mm -hmm. of bringing clarity to that for the communities within our community that we're trying to meet, right? And we've done a great, great work with our senior population. We've done some great work with, with uh, perspectives here in, in the city. Um, but we have a number of other uh, communities that we are just now learning to, to talk to. And we, we had this conversation the other night, right? So within certain households, there's this family-driven, very... Um, legacy kind of housing situation, right? Where people take care of, the family takes care of the family. Um, and so for us to remove a family member is really counter to their, to their, you know, kind of their cultural ideology. And so we just have to be sensitive to that and realize that every solution that we pick is not going to be necessarily the most 
popular solution, right? So when you so uh, communities who are tapping into this, as I'm exploring how much time, so we're we're good on time yet. I just want to make sure we don't uh, uh, run our listeners off the road here. The uh, I think as I think about this, what should communities who are listening to this podcast, mm -hmm. um, what should they be doing as first steps? I mean, maybe they don't have a race equity director or a race equity coordinator, but what should they be doing in order to think about this in a way that starts to make meaningful change in their community? Well, for me, as not a director of race equity and inclusion, um, for me, I think acknowledgement is the biggest first and foremost step um, acknowledging the impact, whether intentional or unintentional, of your programming or your policies or the way that you do things is really important, right? Because if we don't see it, then how are we going to know that it's there? And also see that communities have faced a lot of trauma around these these situations around these um, experiences, um, and not just one person or one family, but the entire community has this trauma. This entire community has a story that they tell and that they feel about police, about fire, about um, healthcare. And these stories are really powerful. Stories really frame how we experience the world and how we interpret the world, right? I, um, I am grew up undocumented. I had DACA until I think a year ago. Um, I was in a car crash, my first and only car crash ever. And this was during a time when my DACA had lapsed. So it expired, but I was in the process of waiting for my new card. I got in a car crash, so I didn't, I had my license, but it was expired. I was so scared of what would, what the police would do. It was so scared. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm someone who has worked with police who's been in local government for years. And I was so scared, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So the stories that we hear, that we know, that we tell are so powerful and just frame how we interpret the world so much. So that's why I feel like it's just important to know where we're at and where community is at and what the stories are. And when Jocelyn says that the stories are important, I think one of the things that I want us to keep in mind is that that is their story. Mm -hmm. And so we have to honor what we are hearing. You know, it's not up to us to say, I don't believe that. That mm -hmm. didn't happen. That would never happen. But it did happen. And so that's one of the reasons why I really love the racial equity impact analysis tool because it asks right away, if you're looking at putting in place a policy or making a decision that it asks who's in the room, right? Are the groups that are gonna be most impacted by that decision in the room? If not, then do we need to make this decision right now? Can we make this decision in an hour? Can we bring in that voice that's not here, that perspective that's not here so that they can be a part of helping us to see it from multiple cultural perspectives? Right. Then I think it's also important to say, what are the racial equity? What are the equity impacts of this decision, of this policy and have that conversation? Who's going to benefit or be burdened by this decision, this policy? And then lastly, are there any strategies to mitigate any unintended consequences 
as a result of this decision we're going to make or this policy, this program, this procedure that we're going to put in place. And if you've done those things, that's a great place to start. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that's exactly right. And that's actually probably a good place to to start to wrap this up, because I think that really does put a bow on the conversation, right? It's mm -hmm. just there's no easy path, there's, but you have to do the work. You have mm -hmm. to follow through. And I, and I know in the conversations we've had radius about that, uh, about those tools, if if you begin to apply that to every conversation, if you start mm -hmm. or think through every decision you make, have I considered those things right? right then ultimately you're probably going to generally be on the right side of that decision and you're probably going to make decisions which are more uh, more calculated and more relevant and certainly more equitable uh, within the community amy do you have anything else you want to add um other than with the uh the race equity grant that we have for anoka county from mdh um i i'm thankful that i'll be able to you know, tap into your expertise. And I really want to be able to have that, um, that community have the, the right messengers that are going out um, and that we're utilizing the tools that you have um, as we continue to plan and go out into the community and try and get these listening sessions going where we can build that. It, it really is about building that relationship um, that's what Care Resource Connection is all about. Um, I take pride in coming into a community and bringing our arms around everyone and trying to have them work together. Um, but I also want to be very um, upfront with everyone. I, and I'm a forever learner. You know, I don't have all the answers. Um, but to be able to have the people around me um, that can can help and and share that knowledge and and make the our Community Health Alliance is stronger because of it. Um, I'm just incredibly thankful and grateful for both of you. And recognize, I want you to recognize that you might not get it right the first time and mm -hmm. don't give up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, keep trying. It's a story of my life, Radius. I think <laughs> <you>. <laughs> All right. Uh, I want to tell thank you the podcast listeners for uh, tuning in and uh, and listening to this very important message and and there'll be more conversations uh, with both Radius and Jocelyn I think in the future so feel free to tune in at a later time but uh, thank you Radius Jocelyn appreciate your time today thank you so much thank yeah take care we hope you enjoyed today's podcast please tune in next Wednesday wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank <laughs> you.